professor at Olin College, and I study asteroids. I have a pretty cool job, and one of my favorite parts is getting to meet all the interesting people who spend their days exploring space. Each week, I'll introduce you to one of these smart folks and ask them to tell us about their corner of the cosmos. Today's guest is Dr. Nancy Chabot, who is a planetary scientist at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory in Laurel, Maryland. She's involved in several missions, but I want to highlight that she is the coordination lead on NASA's Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, mission. Dr. Chabot was on the show on Episode 7 very early on, talking about the Messenger mission to Mercury, and on Episode 152 to talk about her research into iron meteorites. Welcome back. Oh, great to be here. And uh, it's been a whirlwind of 29 days, so it's a lot to talk about. Yeah, I'm so excited to have a timely SpacePod episode <laughs> so soon after your results on this mission. We are recording on October 26. I have a little bit of a cold, so I am drinking Cozini Organic Greek Mountain Tea. What are you drinking? Well, special for this occasion, I went down and picked out the prettiest can out of the APL vending machine that I could find. So it turns <laughs> out that it's a grapefruit bubbly sparkling water in a lovely, lovely pink can. It's such a pretty pink. So I'm going to try my tea which is very good and one of my favorite things to drink while sick. It's got like a nice floral taste, but it's not too strong. It doesn't have caffeine. Uh, let's see how your grapefruit <laughs> pretty drink is. I mean, it's mostly sort of a sparkling water, but I think the little bitterness of the grapefruit is like really sort of interesting, adds a little bit to it. You know, I mean, it's, and the can is beautiful, um, but I might, I might get this again even, we'll see. Well, I'm glad we both have pleasant drinks this time. I know that hasn't always been the case. It has not always been the case. So today we were going to talk about the DART mission. And Dr. Chabot, I know you and I are extremely excited about DART. But for the other people who haven't been watching this day by day, can you just briefly give an overview of what it did? DART was the first successful demonstration of asteroid deflection in space. That's a big thing. And I think it's been exciting to see the worldwide interest in that result. More simply, DART was a spacecraft that purposely crashed into an asteroid and moved it slightly. And so that's a sort of technology for planetary defense that you'd want to develop if you potentially needed to move an asteroid slightly if there was found one that was a threat to the Earth. I mean, as we know right now of all the asteroids that are being tracked, none are a threat to the Earth for the foreseeable future. But we actually haven't found all of the asteroids yet. So along with finding the asteroids, it makes sense to be developing technologies like DART in order to potentially do something about them if you needed to. Could not agree more. Since this was relatively recent, could you tell us what it was like to watch the impact and the results come in? Like, what is that like after all this time you've spent working on this project? Yeah, well, I think it was really exciting, too, that that moment was shared by the NASA broadcast worldwide. The Mission Operations Center here at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab was running the mission. But, you know, then really in real time, as soon as the team was seeing the images, they were also being put out there to the world. So a little bit of context of one of the major challenges for the DART mission, and that was the spacecraft had to autonomously guide itself to hit a small asteroid that it had never seen before, when it was 7 million miles away, going 14,000 miles per hour, and navigate itself, use the images, not just to send them back to Earth, to control the thrusters and ensure it remained on target. 
and do that. So it was in this autonomous, self-driving, self-flying, I should say, a mode for the last four hours of the mission. And all of this, uh, the team was watching and mission operations was going through their checklist. And we all got to experience that moment together. Here at APL, there was a thousand plus people. There were people in the Mission Operations Center. The broadcast was going on, hosted from APL, sent out to NASA. But I know a lot of people on the team held watch parties at their various institutions and had gathered around in a whole variety of settings really around the world. And then, you know, some, some people in my family were just watching on their computer or watching it with their kids and, and things like that. So I think everybody had a different moment experience and it really was just amazing having worked on this since APL started working on this in 2015. So a lot of the team, you know, many years went into this and then all of a sudden you see what this asteroid looks like for the first time. And then very shortly afterwards, you know, within those last few minutes and last few seconds, you see the surface. It comes into stark, beautiful view of this rocky surface. And, and that last image is just a little partial one because the spacecraft did everything it could, sent out all the last data it could, and, and really fulfilled its purpose of slamming right into that asteroid super solidly. It was a super exciting thing to watch. <laughs> I was also watching, and I think my nose was like a centimeter from my computer screen when I was looking at those images, trying to, to get as much information I could out of it. I just wanted to be closer until, yeah, that last screen popped up. Could you talk about the results you've been finding in the weeks since impact? Yeah, so a major challenge was that technology of targeting that small asteroid in space that had never been seen. And as soon as that was done successfully, though, and I mean, as soon as that was done successfully, telescopes here on the Earth were already looking up, were already gathering data to see the resulting ejecta that resulted. And so telescopes, particularly in Africa, were very well suited for this. And they captured this ejecta that was thrown off within, you know, the first few minutes after DART's collision and, you know, shared those images around as well. And then other telescopes started to chime in one after one after another as, you know, as it kind of got into their night skies and they could get these these data. And even before that, the Italian CubeSat Lichia tube, the light Italian CubeSat for imaging of asteroids, it was a small briefcase sized spacecraft that was kicked off the main DART spacecraft 15 days in advance. But it made its close by flyby three minutes after. So we're all celebrating seeing these images, but Lichia Cube busy working, busy capturing all its images, storing them on board. Um, and they got sent some of those back the next day. And they just showed these spectacular streamers of ejecta coming off of the asteroid Dimorphos that DART had just collided with. And a lot of that data is down, but that data is still actively being transmitted back to the Earth even right now. And so we haven't even gotten that full data set back. JWST and Hubble Space Telescope in space capture dramatic pictures. A few hours later, telescopes on the Earth have seen that there's a tail that extends for more than 10,000 kilometers at this point. So it sort of looks like a comet in a lot of these images. And Hubble Space Telescope continues to monitor that tail and telescopes around the world. Um, so all of that was a lot of excitement about the ejecta. But the main purpose also for the telescopes was to see how much we moved the asteroid. And so that was a whole different task that then we were able to share some results on a few weeks ago. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's doing the period change. We used a double asteroid system here because we just demonstrated deflection of a smaller asteroid around a larger asteroid, how Dimorphos goes around Didymos. And telescopes here on the Earth had discovered that asteroid system back in 1996 and have been watching it ever since then. And they knew that it took 11 hours and 55 minutes. This is what it was all the time. 11 hours and 55 minutes, Dimorphos goes around Didymos. But then the telescopes turned their gaze after collision and got that same sort of data. And what they found from that is that now the answer is 11 hours and 23 minutes. So it's actually a change in the orbital period of 32 minutes, which is a lot. 
and very measurable and we're very excited about it. It's a very exciting result. It's also only a 4% change. And so now Dimorphos just orbits ever so slightly closer to Didymos. So in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big of a deflection. But this is also exactly what you want to do in a real world scenario if the need ever arose, because we're not trying to destroy the asteroid. We're not trying to do something very destructive. What you want to do is something that's pretty minimal, actually. Just give it a small nudge, and that adds up to a bigger change in its position with time. So you would do this many years in advance of when you actually needed this technology. And so it's very exciting that now this has been successfully done by DART, deflecting how Dimorphos goes around Didymos and being able to measure how effective that was. And I believe that 32-minute change was a little bit larger than maybe some of the ranges that were expected. I also know that you know people are working very hard to figure out the models right now, but it seems like this was particularly effective based on what scientists might have expected. Yeah, the DART mission had a requirement to at least cause a period change of 73 seconds. So sometimes you hear that number thrown around, but that's really because we just wanted to be able to measure it with telescopes to a 10% accuracy. So that was a requirement. Even if the DART spacecraft did its phenomenal job of targeting a small asteroid in space that had never been seen before when it was 7 million miles away, <laughs> once you do that, and if you hit it square on, then just the amount of uh, momentum that you bring in with that spacecraft alone would have caused about a seven minute change in the orbital period. And so 32 minutes is considerably larger than seven minutes. And so what you're seeing is that this ejecta that's captured in these in these telescopic images is playing an important role in enhancing that deflection, that you're not just getting the momentum that you bring in with the spacecraft, but that the ejecta that's getting thrown off is actually helping you to deflect the asteroid. And so that's what makes this a very exciting and promising result for planetary defense is that it shows that asteroid deflection by a kinetic impactor can be even potentially enhanced just because of the natural objects that you're dealing with from this sort of approach. Professor Derek Richardson was on the show a few months ago talking about that beta factor and how big this splash was going to be. And so I think he's very excited measuring and figuring out exactly how big that splash was at this point. You mentioned these kind of streamers of ejecta that were released, and that was kind of a surprising result to some people. So like, if you, I don't know, if you drop like a ball bearing in a bunch of sand, you're going to kind of get an even cone of, of stuff coming up. But what we saw in these images were these kind of streamers coming out. Do you have any comments on that result? What, what are scientists thinking about that so far? Yeah, I think you described it really nicely. It was spectacular. The images are spectacular and they're just mesmerizing. They look sort of like fireworks going off in a lot of ways. But the more people thought about it, this isn't just a nice homogeneous sandy target. You could see that in the images when you saw those rocks up close. There are a whole bunch of different sizes and there are a whole bunch of different ones of them. And if you look at something like the moon, you have rayed craters all the time, right? I mean, and so, you know, these craters and the ejecta naturally kind of goes into these ray patterns. And we see that all over the surfaces of planetary bodies from there. When people do experiments in the lab, if they don't drop into just a nice sandy homogeneous target, actually the different topography and the different strengths of the target material will cause you to get sort of these rays or these streamers. And so in that way, it's just very exciting for these things that are, you know, fossilized rayed craters on the moon that you see 
to see it basically being created in action and going into these streamers. And that all tells you a lot of information then about your surface, because if you did have more of a homogeneous surface, you wouldn't expect that. So this is a huge wealth of information that we have by able to study those streamers. What do they look like? How many of them are there? And that gives you information about the target that you hit into, the strength of that material, what the different makeup and the you know different sort of sizes of the rocks, not just at the surface, but the subsurface that is contributing to that larger impact event. So it's it's a huge wealth of information that people are very excited about. It makes spectacular images as well, let me say. <laughs> Those images yeah. are really, really <laughs> spectacular and amazing. But I think it's also consistent with what we know about the impact cratering process that we see across rocky bodies of the solar system and that people have done from experiments in the lab. And just related to the fact that, you know, these are real natural bodies that are not just smooth spherical surfaces out there, as you saw with those final dramatic images taken by DART. I was very surprised by these images, but then I talked to a friend who's a crater expert and they're like, of course, <laughs> this is, you know, what these eject on craters look like. And so that's kind of an interesting thing where there's that parallel between those images and crater images, for example, on the moon. Yeah. I mean, just so often we see the result of that, things that happened millions of years ago or billions of years ago, right? I mean, mostly millions for raid craters, I suppose, but, you know, maybe a billion or so. Yeah, and here it is happening in real life, you know, this uh, natural human-made non that we get to study at a full-scale test of asteroid deflection. I worked on a survey of planetary defense experts this summer, and experts generally thought we had a 41% chance of successfully deflecting a 100 or 40 meter or bigger sized asteroid with only five years warning. And I should note that the expert answers were really all over the place. Some people thought we had a very good chance and a lot of people just said we had a 5% chance because there's a lot of unknowns here. I was wondering if you had any perspective on scaling this up after DART has now been successful and we've learned a little bit more. In a real world scenario, how do you feel about this as an actual approach to deflecting an asteroid? I think as an actual approach to deflecting an asteroid, DART has been an amazing success. I think one thing that you know sometimes people don't fully appreciate is that the asteroid Dimorphos at 160 meters is exactly the size that's a priority for planetary defense. So you don't really need to scale this up to a larger asteroid. This is the sort of asteroid that you would be concerned about from a planetary defense priority right now. There's these few hundred meter sorts of objects. So the fact that something like the DART spacecraft, which is you know, only the main body of it is only about six feet by six feet by six feet. It's a very human sized spacecraft and it was able to deflect this larger asteroid. So I think that technology and that advancement and that we're still learning about all the results like you've alluded to. But I think we've shown that this is a very successful way to deflect an asteroid very slightly. But it only works with that warning time. So I think that's really the big axis that has me a lot of concern. And if you're talking about things like five years, I don't want to be in that situation. I mean, five years is not a lot of warning time. And you don't want to be trying to scale this to something where you necessarily have such a short amount of warning time. You really want to be more on the 10, 20, 30, 40 years, which is entirely realistic if you find the asteroids. Once we find them and identify them, people are very good at assessing where they are for more on the order of 100 years. You know, And so you really could be in this situation to have warning times. If you're talking about warning times that are that are only five years, then I think your options have already been severely limited. So for something like DART to be successful, I think focusing on ensuring that you have that warning time aspect to go along with the technological success that DART has been is both of those are needed to come at your final probability of how effective this would be. I'm thinking also of an interview with Dr. Paul Chodas, who studies orbits of asteroids as they get close to planets. And 
where you make that change makes a large difference. And if you have a lot of warning, then you can really take advantage of, you know, making a change when the orbit is very sensitive. <laughs> and a small change can make a big difference. So it's very complicated. <laughs> it is, but, and it is. And you just want to put yourself in that situation where you have that warning time, right? Which is entirely realistic to have. Some people are like, oh, how can you? Is it... No, once you identify these things, having decades of warning time is a very realistic scenario to be in. Yeah, they're very different than earthquakes, which are unpredictable, or floods, which you can predict maybe a couple hours in advance. Like, this is something you really can get a very long prediction for. That's very accurate. I've been talking about this mission with my students this semester, and they brought up an interesting point that they wanted me to ask you. Astronomy for a really long time has been an observational science by necessity. And there's something kind of interesting and some people might think pure, beautiful about that, where you're just observing and you're never interacting. And the DART mission seems to be fundamentally different, where humans are changing the orbit of a planetary body. And somehow, to some students, that might seem less pure. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, to take the other angle on it, I kind of went into planetary science because I feel like it's space that you can do more than just look at. I study meteorites, for example. I bring these rocks into the lab and I cut them in half and I crush them and I do other nasty, nasty things to them all of the time, right? And we live on a planet and, you know, we're constantly exploring there. Uh, you know, plenty of other planetary uh, exploration missions uh, are roving around the surface of Mars, have crashed into the moon repeatedly, you know. Uh, I worked on the Messenger mission. It crashed into Mercury at this point, you know. So, so in some ways, the closer the objects are to us, you know, it's not really just this space that you look at, right? And I think that's an exciting place to be for being accessible, the accessible space that directly is relevant to us living on a planet here and that we get hit by things, but then you also don't have to go very far out, all of the lunar exploration that's going on. But it does also then raise these other questions because when something is accessible, then you have to figure out what that means for accessing it in a sustainable way going forward that makes sense for all of humanity. So I think it is a big, a big question, but I don't really see DART as being that different than everything else that's been going on in solar system exploration or is continuing and all of the space activities that are growing, especially the commercial space activities that are getting a big foot going up. You know, you could say the same thing about satellites in the Earth's atmosphere, you know, that are Earth orbiting satellites. So it's a it's an important conversation. And so I'm really glad that your students are bringing it up and having those conversations because they're really important to come. And there's no, no easy answer, but I don't think DART is alone in sort of this larger conversation. Yeah, thank you for answering that. Are there any major misconceptions about DART that you want to address that come to mind? I think the one that we get a lot, and probably you'll relate to this and what you do, is people constantly would ask us how far away this asteroid is or how far in advance you would have to do this, right? How far away in advance from the Earth do you need to do this? So I think that's a really important concept here, right? That these asteroids are going around the sun. They have orbits that go around the sun and the earth goes around the sun. And they're not just all coming towards the earth at any random time and you would get them a certain amount of distance. It's, you know, intercepting them enough ahead of time so that you have the time to have that change in position add up with time. But I think that is really one of the common perceptions. So some of the ways we've been starting to talk about this with DART is actually using this double asteroid system again, where you have the two asteroids. And what we did is we just deflected how the smaller asteroid went around the larger one, right? And that's really what you would want to do here. You would just want to deflect how this asteroid went around the sun ever so slightly if you did have this threat in the future to the earth you know so rather than 
deflecting it so that it's not on the course with theirs. It's kind of deflecting its orbit, changing its orbit ever so slightly around the larger sun, and everybody will just orbit the sun peacefully together. It's an interesting thing. I think in a lot of the disaster movies, there'll be these pictures of this asteroid or comet that comes like past Jupiter. And it, it does look like it's just like heading towards Earth. But instead, it's this dance where you have these two things going around the sun, and sometimes they're close and sometimes they're far. But that close and farness changes over several years before they happen to like cross paths. But I like that idea of, you know, just moving it out of the way and we're st still cool, both going around the sun, still there, but no longer a threat to either one of us. Yeah, exactly. What's next for you? Oh, I can't think about that right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, Fair I mean, I, I can, but it's only, it hasn't even been a full month yet since and I don't mean this to whole rush thing you, happened. Right? Like... The team is so busy. I mean, let me just say that. I mean, you know, it's just been a joy to be on this DART investigation team. And we have a really large team, a international team. People are working very hard. And we've really only just started to get into this analysis. The results already are exciting, but I'm excited to delve into this for the next months. And we're presenting some initial results at AGU in December, and there'll be a lot of new results that come out in 2023, sort of more of these detailed models. So I'm looking forward to focusing on there. I've got a few other things going on as well. The Martian Moons Exploration Mission, very happy and honored to be on that JAXA mission. And I'm also on the Bepi Colombo mission, which is going to orbit Mercury, and uh, really happy to be involved on that ESA mission there as well. So, But right now, I think um, it's not very often that you get to be in a moment like this. And so I'm really trying to be present and trying to be present here with the team and just really all work on this together and learn everything that we possibly can. I cannot wait to see all of these new results that are going to come out. It'll be exciting to have the results come out for this and, uh, and really hoping that this really is just the start for planetary defense. DART was sort of this pioneering mission and a huge success. We're excited that HERA, the European Space Agency mission, is going to rendezvous with this asteroid system in late 2026 and take some exciting measurements in 2027. So we know that'll continue. But there's a lot of other planetary defense activities that are very, very important, such as this warning time and finding all of the asteroids so that we can have a more unified strategy for planetary defense. And you know, DART with a kinetic impact air technique is one technology that you might want to use to move an asteroid and deflect an asteroid if you needed to. But there's probably other technologies that are worth developing as well. So I think it's it's an exciting future that we that we live in now that this first asteroid deflection mission has successfully been demonstrated. But it really is just a future that we have to continue to help define. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Chabot, for being on the show. And now that we've heard all about the most recent DART results, we get to hear a fun fact about Nancy. Well, I figured maybe I would tell you about my most interesting books that I've been reading, and I've been really Ooh. into the Murderbot Diaries. Have you read them? I have not. Oh, but I, I really love a murder excellent. mystery. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Murderbot Diaries. I highly recommend it. It's like a multiple book series, and I just kind of like lost myself in it. And now I'm I'm kind of sad. There's some new ones coming out. You know, when you get to the end of a series, and they're like, "Oh, more books coming," and you're like, "Why are the books not here? Why do I have right. to wait?" <laughs> I feel I felt like this in Star Wars. You know, when it was you know, Luke, I'm your father, and I was like, "What? I have to wait for the next movie?" So, anyways, it's a great book series. Highly recommend it. Well, thank you so much for the recommendation. I'm going to have to check it out. And thanks again for taking time to be on the show. This was great. Oh, well, thank you for having me again. This is a great podcast. Oh, thanks. <laughs> hey, everyone. Before you go, I wanted to quickly talk about a new short story podcast. It's called Tales of the Wise Fools of Hell. And it's made by Mel Powell, longtime friend of the show. New episodes come out every week. And you can also find the stories in book form. 
Just search for Tales of the Wise Fools of Helm on Amazon. Here's my favorite episode so far. A recession had hit Helm. Unfortunately, Boris the Balagula had been hit particularly hard because for some strange reason, there was no job anywhere in the village for an honest, hard-working Balagula. He looked everywhere. He applied at the bakery, but Rivka was all baked out. He applied at Schneider's tailor shop, but Schneider's business was only so-so. Things were so bad that even the town beggar had to take a second job. So Boris reluctantly left Helm one morning in search of any work at all, even a temporary part-time job. And at last, he got lucky. Help wanted, Boris cried upon seeing the sign. At last, after weeks of no work at all, I have found a possibility. And who would have thought that I would find such a sign here at the Vitipskabojnia Zoo? Boris entered the famous zoo, figuring that shoveling out cages was better than no work at all. The Russian zookeeper took one look at the tall and muscular Balagula. Have I got the job for you, said the Russian. Our dear gorilla, I regret to tell you, has left us peacefully for Big Jungle in Sky. And our new gorilla, I regret to tell you, has not yet arrived from Big Jungle in Africa. So you, my friend, are going to put on this beautiful gorilla costume and be our gorilla. Boris was not the fastest thinker in the world, or even in his tiny hometown of Helm. You want me to do what? Simple, good sir. Can you run? Good. Can you jump? Good. Are you strong enough to swing from a vine? Good. Are you large and stupid? Don't bother nodding. I can answer that one myself. The kids will love you, and I will pay you the exorbitant sum of 500 kopecks each week, plus enrollment in our Sar Permanente medical plan, and whatever food our visitors throw at you, you may keep. Boris did not relish the thought of being a gorilla, but he didn't have time to monkey around, so he took the job. And the kids loved him. He had a wonderful time, and the patrons threw veritable bushels full of food at him. However, one day Boris became a bit too creative. Today I will show the children a new trick. I will swing out over the lion's area, and just before the lion can reach me, I will turn and swing back safely. But Boris had eaten too much of the food he had caught all summer, and as he swung, the vine broke. Into the lion's den he fell. Oy vey, panicked Boris as the lion charged. Five minutes ago I was thinking about eating lunch. Now I'm about to become lunch. And Boris began to run for his very life. But the lion gained ground by the instant. Finally, Boris could bear no more, and he broke character and shouted, Help! Help! Get me out of here! Behind him, the lion's mouth opened, and Boris waited to hear the last roar of his brilliant career as a balagula. But instead of a roar, Boris recognized the unmistakable voice of Beryl the Beetle. Boris, be quiet! You want to get us both fired? I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Intro music is from The Return by Deltron3030. Huge thanks to Deltron3030 for letting me use it. The beeps you just heard are from the very first space probe, Sputnik. You can visit us at listentospacepod.com, and we're at listentospacepod on Twitter. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of my employer or the employer of my guest. Thanks for listening.